0: Um, All here for this very special evening, because this is the first in our new JAM series, In Conversation With. Um, So many of you may not know much about JAM, uh, what we are and who we are and what we do. And this is partly because we're quite a new organisation, but also we're a very small organisation. We were set up in 2019 in response to some very tragic suicides in the community, and they rocked the community and woke us all up to the need for better mental health support for both young and old in our community. And then when the pandemic struck, um, we rapidly entered—sorry, uh, rapidly expanded our educational and awareness building, uh, our remit, uh, to start offering much needed counselling and therapy during those difficult couple of years. So we were able to offer free counselling and therapy to all those who needed it. Um, and during the pandemic, during those couple of years, we were funded by the NHS and government Covid funds, Uh, Now we have a team of 35 qualified and accredited therapists working for Jam. Sadly, the COVID support has now stopped, so we no longer get that money. Um, But the need for it, the need for that therapy hasn't stopped. So that's our problem at the moment. Um, Today we've provided therapy to many, many people in our community, young and old. Um, And these people are your neighbours, friends, family, you might not know who they are. Um, we, we've definitely saved lives, you know, we are um, at that point where we are getting people when, before they're in crisis, when they're in crisis, um, and helping them through very difficult times. But we are operating hand to mouth, uh, and unlike most other charities in Manchester, we don't have a paid marketing team, that's why you might not know much about what we do. Wherever we go, people say, what's Jan, we are not heard much about you, and that's because we are so small, we don't have these big marketing teams, we don't have any marketing team actually. Um, we don't even have we don't have a paid CEO or anything like that. We're so tiny. We actually have one full time member of staff, and that's our wonderful Kate, who's our project manager. Uh, and we have also a part time clinical lead, who's Daniel over there. So to, um, and that's it. That means all your donations uh, and. Donations from the community go directly to therapy, there are no We have no office, we don't have a yet. When we have to print things it's a problem because we don't have the resources. So that's who we are and that's what we do. Um, these new Jam In Conversation series um, aim really to get people talking about mental health and how we can all better face challenges that life may throw at us. So the series is going to be a succession of conversations with members of our community who have experienced challenging events sometimes incredibly challenging, but who can inspire us all uh, by sharing how they've managed to cope, move forward and grow in spite of, or maybe because of, what's happened to them. So tonight is bound to be an emotional evening, but I think we're all going to benefit in some way from Rabbi Benji Rickman's brave decision to speak tonight about his personal tragedy. So with that, I'm going to welcome you. Thank you very much for doing this tonight. And This is going to be a conversation, so I'm going to be asking questions. Okay, I hope you can all see and hear. Um, so first of all, my first question to you is, um, why have you decided to speak today and
1: here? I think I asked myself that question about 20 times this afternoon. It sounded like a good idea when we first pitched it. Um, I think people are generally scared of difficult conversations. I see it more and more in my day job in school, where whether it's certain staff members or parents have such a preference from protecting their kids in such a nauseating way that we're, we're scared of ever putting ourselves or other people in a situation which is unpleasant. And I don't think that's necessarily smart. Life is full of unpleasant situations. Conversations that are difficult are always going to be part of our professional lives, whether It's ourselves to our boss or to a colleague or to someone that needs needs some some guidance. And that's one thing. I think I want to just make it okay to have a complicated conversation. I don't think that in any way that our family or me doing this is is special or or brave. I just think when you're in a situation that we are, or we we are continuing to be, if you can help someone, then do so. I grew up with, with a dad who, who got ill in 1986, I was born in 78, you know, with me, he got meningitis, then ME, and he was pretty much ill for most of, you know, most of my childhood. But yet, when he wasn't in bed, when he wasn't you know, in bed for many months, and he continued to work. So he continued doing his job, we even had a, a hotline from his office into our house, so no one knew where he was. Then, even when he was sick, we, he still looked to help people, and he did that. So I guess as a role model, I grew up with someone who was struggling with their health and living life as a sick person, but who never stopped being there for other people. And I guess maybe that's what it is. It's sort of that's what I was taught. I was shown that that doesn't matter what you're doing. If you can be of service to somebody else, then just get on and be of service. And not to a place where you're denigrating yourself or not looking after yourself, cycle that would be self-defeating. But if you, can, if you can cope, even if it's up and down, even if you're going a little bit backwards, but you, you're not completely falling apart, then be there to help other people. And that's probably what's playing in the back of my head.
0: Well, that's, that's amazing. I mean, I know that it's difficult, because I know we've had some conversations, and you've said to me... Um, I can't think about that you know it's a different headspace so I think the fact that you're here to give to other people and help other people is, is, is great and um, I'm sure we're very grateful for that but hopefully it won't be too uncomfortable for you. But can you tell us about Naftali then for those of us who weren't fortunate to have known him what, what was he like?
1: I think there are two parts to his story when he sent me the questions that's where I stopped reading there was Naftali I think in Naftali's head he was 15 years old he was almost almost 16 he just, just bought his suit and his clothes for sixth form in Jewish grammar If you would have asked him, if he was here now, he would say, I was stupid. Why was was he stupid? Because he was dyslexic and school was difficult. If you would say, what did I achieve Oh, I achieved nothing. No, he loved his siblings, loved his twin sister. He was my sidekick from nine years old. He was pretty much always by my side. So he loved his parents. He was was loving and sweet and giving. And then something happened, something, something changed in those months that we were in the hospital. And a whole different totally emerged. And I can say that with confidence, with pride, because when we, had to, you know, when we had to go back to that hospital for an outpatient appointment for one of our other kids, a place that I never wanted to go back to, but, but what do you do, that's a children's hospital. I asked behind the outpatient's desk with well, the rheumatology team at work today, I said, yes, and there was, was his consultant now wanted to say hi. And some random guy, whether he was a porter or someone very, very junior in the hierarchy of the hospital, said, I remember him. Like, there was a child there that literally affected an entire hospital. And I was completely blown away that some random guy who was, wasn't part of the clinical team, wasn't on the wards, I didn't recognise him. There was the Natali that emerged who... Was so, he, he just grew in stature. Like, his consultant took leave of absence after he passed away. Like, it, was, it wasn't just... You know, We saw, that like, one of the wards we were on, a child, it was, um, a child, a young child passed away from cancer. And literally a few hours later, it was business as usual on the ward. It was, it was, it was really hard to experience that. Like, the room was cleared out and then cleaned, and like, someone else went into that room, like... Like religious language, the angel of death had been dancing a few hours earlier. It was business as usual. And here, his consultant took a leave of absence because she she couldn't do it. The the whole place just. When they came to our house during Shiva, and I'm jumping ahead in the the chronology, but they came to visit us. The medical team. The medical team and the the occupational therapist came in. I think four or five of them walked in one evening around seven o'clock. So he would never have believed that that's who he became. Someone who was so self-effacing that somehow him would have an impact on the lives of a a whole building and and the lives of people who took time out to come visit us. (laughs) It's almost like prophetic that the last act he chose to do freely when he was out of hospital because he never He never got to come home once we'd gotten to hospital, was he went to visit one of his friends who were sitting shiver because they lost a a sibling as well. And it's almost like a bit unnerving, and I can't think of the right word now, that that his last act was comforting a friend. Um, No, when his friends came to visit us in the hospital, he he was only worried that he was bothering them. He, He as we left the ward for the final hours before he was taken down for a second time to intensive care. He was just he was apologizing to the guy next to us that he was disturbing his, his evening and I'm so sorry that I'm having asking you to have to leave the room because he needed an X-ray on the ward and he just became this was I don't know it's wonderful all the positive qualities that you can possibly imagine that he would never attribute to himself those few months he just grew in stature. almost I remember saying at the time it's almost as if his maturation and his life was on fast forward and what people achieve in years or in decades he was somehow achieving in weeks so like to just reach this, perf- this perfected state of of, of of being a human. Everyone just, you know, everyone just was impacted by him in a way that you couldn't imagine positively. Um,
0: That's incredible. I mean, usually, uh, you'd expect illness to bring out the worst. No, he, he, Mm. it it was just,
1: it it wasn't. He just, yeah, he just got Mm. more and more sublime, more and more beautiful as a human being. And caring and, Mm. Just wanting to be there, he he, he didn't. He, there was no anger. He cr- he cr- I said as I'm, I'm going back to memories now that I've sort of not accessed, but he he it, it broke his heart that he couldn't shake the arbor Minim on Sukkot so or couldn't come home to the Sukkot. That things that you know, teenagers I mean, just so both on the on the interpersonal level, that he just grew in the most beautiful way, and that impact. I mean was felt, and other people people came into our ward just to hang out with us, random mums, just, they just sat out and chatted with him, with us. It was He had some effect that he would never, he would never believe about himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then only afterwards, did we, and I, this I put in my, in articles that I put for the, for the Jewish Tribune newspaper, only afterwards did we discover the help that he'd given and then, you know, kids come home from school, how was school today? Good, fine. You know, one or just monosyllabic grunts. You know, then that's totally normal for teenagers. To expect anymore, I think, is as unreasonable as a parent. Or, or you have the other extreme, where they just don't stop talking. So, you know, there's no real middle place. We never heard of how he befriended a kid who had come from another school and was having real difficult times and could have, God forbid, been a client here had it existed in the past. And, saved their lives and transformed. People wrote this to us. Boys shared stories that we never knew. He never came home. For him, it was just like, okay, so I'm going up to a kid in the playground who looks lonely and rejected, and I'm going to go and talk to him every single day for months. And and he never, we didn't know that. To me, he was my sidekick. He was by my side, wherever I went, he came with me. I used to call him my bodyguard. He was five foot 10 and strong. Um, And that's sort of, so we're holding on to this, this split, memory of who he was. The, 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 no, when he got his GCSEs, we were, we were visiting my in-laws uh, in Florida, a uh, random family trip. No, sorry, he was. My was ugh, he was visiting, went with his, with his twin sister and his, and his big sister to visit the grandparents after the GCSEs. And he, well, the day he got his results, he was so broken because school was difficult for him. Mm-hmm. We were just so happy. He, he passed every single GCSE. There was no... We were, he, and it just reinforced the way he felt about himself. And none of the things that he did do were for him anything to be credit, credit worthy until we got all these letters and all these anecdotes from people. I said, actually, you've actually saved people from despair, and you were there, and your friends. You were the, he was the glue that kept his peers together. And some of them have really struggled. No, oh. regrettably since he passed away. Both from losing a friend, but not having that glue that seemed to keep everyone together.
0: Wow, well, thank you. So that, that's how he coped, and um, that sounds incredible. But how did you cope when he was ill?
1: So, let's do the right thing. Let's acknowledge that, by and large, school gave me the time that I needed and where they didn't, and where they're beginning to like not realise, or not want to realise how serious he was. I mean, we were told it was in the top three or something of sick kids in the whole building, so children's hospital, so you get a sense of what that, the proportions we were dealing with. Um, so I didn't have to deal with school, so that was good. How do we cope? Well, you've got responsibilities as a husband or wife to each other, so we take that seriously. You know and you want to be there for the other, so we needed to be, to be there. I'm not saying strong, strong is a bad word, because obviously we, we had fragile moments, but we were there consciously to support one another as a husband and wife. We had other children, mm-hmm. but we did spend almost every hour between waking up and nighttime in the hostel with him. We, we, we left first thing in the morning, we came back 10.30, between 10 to 11 at night, um, almost every day for whatever it was, two plus months that we were there. Shabbos, we took it in turns, Yom sort of, um mm. other than Rosh Hashanah, when I was called out of shore from the bimah, get out of shore now, he's gone into intensive care. Um, and I was the chazan at the time, so that was, other than that, my, my wife did Yom Kippur. Um, and Sukkos, yeah, she was there as well for that. But Shabbos, we were, it was hard for both of us to let go. So, but we had to again. You have to make space. You no, no one parent can, I believe, should monopolize on who gets to be with the child. You both want it. And being at home is no easier than being there, and they both have struggles and difficulties. Um, but we did get to spend some good Shabbos together. Um, I'll tell you just one just into, There's one beautiful. I, I did a voice note about it. It's got a few times. just so how do I had to share. I, I would share moments that inspired me and felt that. At that time, we didn't know where it would go, so we were still optimistic. And you know, I remember with my father. You know, my mum told me on the Purim, a week or so before he was going to pass away, that he probably that he wasn't going to make it. I mean, it was Tarnit Esther. And you hear it. And he was, my father had been ill anyway for about four weeks by then, in intensive care in London, and he wasn't awake and he wasn't going anywhere. But my, your brain doesn't really deal with it till you have it. So it's very smart. Something You can explain it later. But anyway, where, where, where you go in that, like you just, it just it takes it, but you, you, it looks after you mm-hmm. until you have to mourn. Because mm-hmm. why mourn too early before it's the end? Um, I think doing those voice notes and showing messages and sort of trying to find a positive moment in the day where you go, wow, okay, that was not such a bad day because look what we experienced. There was one family, we moved on to a new ward, and it was very difficult because we'd been been on a very quiet space in his own room, then got transferred to intensive care, then into the high dependency, where it was still quite quiet, but then onto another ward, and it was busy, and there were kids there who had cancer, and it was very difficult to look at, and bald children, and it was hard, to, visually, and he didn't, we didn't know at that time where things were going to go, so we didn't, he didn't see himself, or we didn't see ourselves in that bracket. So we walked around the ward looking, and there was one um, ward for teenagers, it was loud and they were culturally not sensitive, place to be for, for mm-hmm. us um, at that moment. So, when we I looked and found a, a ward that had a, a young child, Muslim family, so, and there was just then in the room, and it was really quiet. There was one Friday night where I said to him, Look down at the floor, we had the curtain between us that was closed. We were both, lack of a different word, davening mm-hmm. at the same time, mm-hmm. we were both facing almost the, the same direction. I mean, the family, the- yeah, the they, they, I could see them, they put their rug down, mm-hmm. and I was Friday night davening, and I just looked down and just for a moment noticed that you know, but others, there's a thin piece of coat in, and one person's bowing down, and one person's standing and bowing, and, and we just sort of shared those moments of how beautiful that we're, you know, there's so much theoretically that pulls us apart, but then we're both in the same place, and we can speak about, you no know, Inshallah, Bezrat Hashem, we'll get better, and mm-hmm. you could speak a language mm-hmm. that, that was common in those moments peppered the experience, I think, gave us each of those moments, or there was a kind the, the man in, in the high dependency unit that brought around the drinks, the old man, and you think in the, the pecking order of a hospital, you've got you know, the consultants who see themselves as God, mm-hmm. they walk in and all the amazing nurses who are the ones doing all the, mm-hmm. they just melt into the wall because they, the Lord has arrived. Mm-hmm. And there, there was one cocky one that kept telling us, he will solve the problem, he never came and spoke to us afterwards. Mm-hmm. He was probably just too ashamed that he had the uh, overstepped the barrier the, 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 where, where he can actually deal with um, we did, and I didn't really want to see him anymore anyway um, but, they'll, but the, tea, the guy who pushes the trolley for the teas I mean if there's any, any little example of who's really been successful academically in life and who's achieved a high career path and who's just pushing around a trolley but this, this man was a righteous man, this milkman and he, he looked after us with teas and he went and got kosher milk for my wife drinks, and it, he was such a beautiful soul and those moments that, you know when you your, when, when your child inspires somebody to want to go beyond their job to look after you, then those moments as well, should so really looking, looking every single day for those moments um, that sort of lifted us up, or whether it was the angel that came from high cancer to, to look after us um, and the look after net, knowing that there was someone that just dropped in from heaven every day. The little treat, or go out for a walk if you go around the building, get some fresh air and I'll stay with Naftali. And it was those, those moments gave you the strength. Yes. Yeah. Besides probably the mental denial of not wanting to think where it was going, yeah. um, and never really thinking it was going to go that way. We were told, don't look on the internet, don't try and be a doctor. Um, Good advice. It, yeah, because what you had was so rare that it is a really bad prognosis, uh, but we and we tried to, to a, of just abide by that, because why torture ourselves and beyond? So, those moments are the positive moments keep, keep you going.
0: Make a difference. Yeah. And when he did pass away, how did your faith get you through? Did, I presume your faith did get you through. How, what, what role did your faith play?
1: I think at that point, it was just a numbness. And a pain that was just so acute, like literally heartbreak. And when I read, this, when we all heard last week of the husband of the lady who was killed, that his heart literally broke. I was there. It was, it was, it was painful, just unbearably painful. But I guess again, in that, going back to that first answer I gave. It's that knowledge that you've got responsibilities beyond yourself and you've got to hold on enough. And we've all seen the movies where they're barely holding on and they get rescued. And I think I felt that way. I found the Siddha an awful place to be. And I, the Siddha has texts that are particularly difficult. You speak about, for generation to generation, we will praise your name. Well, one of my generations isn't going to praise your name. And you start reading the Siddur in a brand new way, where, you, where, where all of a sudden words have meanings that you didn't have last week. It was just a sentence. Mm-hmm. And then I began to think, well, what about the people who never have children? What does our, our, our prayer text do to them? And so and when I, had, I, tried, I avoided davening too much in the Shiva house. I found saying the bracha rafa'enu. Now, so, all of us you know, we read these texts so casually until it literally is what we, what we experience and we you know the arts. You know, were they good at saying, oh, God sometimes says no, fine, lovely. But and we can we deal, but we, it's, thank God, it's often not the most painful you no know, in the world. We can deal with, didn't get the job, didn't get the rage, didn't, and maybe it's just little things. And so it was, but we had someone, two people came to our house at the end of the Shiva. One was the chief rabbi. He happened to be a Manchester king. He was actually going to visit Aftolian in hospital. He was coming to Manchester and I'd spoken with his office and he said to me he would love to come. And it wasn't about the chief rabbi. It wasn't about him giving my son any particular great spiritual concept to hold on to. I just wanted it for the nurses and the well mainly the nurses, and our our particular team, the consultants who were just brilliant and wonderful people. I wanted them to get the the chizot. I wanted them to just be uplifted. Like, here's the chief rabbi coming say thank you to them (laughs) That I wanted them to hit him. He, the timings didn't work out, and he was in school the day after we finished hitting shiva, and he came straight from King David straight to our house. Um, first, of all, it was very weird that guys with guns were guarding my house. That was just a <laughs> thing. That was just an unusual moment. I mean, he spoke about his own daughter that, who passed away, and he said something to me. I mean, he was there for quite a while, but the one bit that I remember, and I hope I've tried in some way to emulate this. He says his daughter was very happy, and Simcha was very much part of her, her life, and he's kept that going in the way that he tackles life, and the way he teaches, and the way he presents himself. And I like that, that's what that idea sort of began to just, just go into the brain. You know, there's no way you're ready for anything at that point, but just that, that idea begins, you, know, you've got, you can't change the reality, but you can channel the energy of that person um, going forward. And the other was a Holocaust survivor whose name I can't remember. He also happened to be a Manchester. H brought him over at the time. And he had lost in the Holocaust 150 of the you know, wider family. And he, you know, and I, just, I was asking him, how do you continue? And obviously it's very different than it's past and present. And his, Baruch Hashem built the most glorious empire of a family. And he was the most wonderful man in his 90s. And he gave an anecdote and sort of the, the, the bottom line was. There are answers, but you've got to be in heaven to find them out, and he was in no rush to find out to, to go to heaven just yet. And I think, you know, there's stuff to do. Hand on heart, we you know you has the thought of getting back into bed, or not getting out of bed, occurred to me since he passed away, absolutely. But we, I never did it. There wasn't one day after I got up that I went back to bed because of it, and I never didn't get up. Um, and that's probably a sense of duty, a duty to the living. You can't change. And so it's, the faith was, I can't understand it. I think a lot of, we're living at a time when because of the internet, we think arrogantly, I can use that word, that we have so much access to knowledge today. And almost we demand our right to know everything. Information. Inf- me, yeah, but I don't. I, I've. I don't. I'm not that victim. I don't fall into that category of needing to know everything. There are things that I'm happy that I don't need to know, and it doesn't bother me if I don't know them. And you no know, tragedies and sadness are part of life, and there's no suggestion that you categorize what what happened to us as not a tragedy. Well, not as such, it's, it's profoundly as such. The head of, one of the heads of my yeshiva, Rav Yehuda Amital, was also a Holocaust survivor, and he quoted often to us a verse in, in the book of Shemot where Hashem says, "For Anche Kodesh tihuni, Be holy people to me. And he quoted the teaching of the Katskareba. He said, God's got enough angels. He wants us to be holy people. Meaning people who get tired, people who get stressed, people that have emotions. We're not meant to be angels, angels are in heaven, we're meant to be people, regular people, with a whole gamut of human emotions. And there are times when, I feel like I've perfected what Rabbi Nachman calls the silent scream, and there are times when I cry out loud, and the times when it's overwhelming, and times when you can cope. The first Seder night, so he passed away in November, the first Seder night, I got through about seven seconds of Kiddush until I completely lost it. And then we sort of just Okay, we've got seder, I Happened to work out it was during COVID, and there was so much literature on how much of the Haggadah you can skip and still tick all the right... I'm not saying you can do that generally.
0: <laughs> or you
1: really can, but you really shouldn't. But there, there are... You, you, and knowing what I knew, we did a, a shortened version of seder. Well, for some people, it could be a long version, but for our family previously, it, be, it was a short version. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, we skipped out the four sons. I wasn't mentioning the word sons on that evening. And that's, anyway, not so integral just to the telling of the story so knowing which bits were integral and then we did a Chabad thing at the end, we didn't sing any of the songs after Halal so there was no singing that year, that couldn't happen but ultimately the first year lost it in the first after seven seconds, it's overwhelming just a a wave as everyone describes it just knocking me down in a way that I just didn't expect I knew it was coming um, but I didn't expect it and then say, well, I've got other children. It's Pesach. You do it properly, because that's the way I was brought up. Now you do things, well, if something is right, you've got to do it right. Um, and so we did it. And we did a couple of hours, and we did all the mitzvahs. I said, well done, and then I we said, well done, we did it. And then the following year, cried somewhere else, well, not in the first seven seconds. But then Baruch Hashem, this year was easier.
0: Does it get easier
1: then? If I can trust bereavement with a parent, it's bereavement over a child, I can say six years down the line from my father passing away, I'm not conscious of thinking about him every single day. And that's normal and natural. Parents are meant to pass away before their children. So I think that's just a natural way humans have, goodness word, evolves. That's a dodgy word than whatever. Um, but I think with a, ch- with a child, it's because it goes against the natural, or, or, or what we perceive, but it's not really, that's also a truth. On the one hand, we say it, it goes against the natural flow of life, but I'm on a Facebook group um, of parents that I've lost, and there's, Unfortunately, thousands of people on this group. I'm not talking about you know, Africa, malnutrition. I'm talking about regular first world countries. And whether it's the American, that could be done to, to road uh, traffic, uh, guns, guns or, yeah. or drugs or just accidents. Unfortunately, you know, we, we say on one hand, it's not natural because we think about chronology. But it happens and it happens all over the place. And there are lots of people. And there's some on that, that group, I don't really look at, really look at it anymore. I used it at first, I found it comforting to be able to express things with people who knew exactly what I was saying, and could just say something back, and it was meaningful because they were there, they, they were in that space. Um, I think we just live in that uncomfortable space, which has just become the new norm. If I compare it to, you know, if you're walking in the street and you get a stone in your shoe, so it's hurt, so... You might want to keep walking for a bit, or you want to maybe take the shoe off and take the stone out. But if you don't take the stone out, eventually you'll have a dent in your foot where the stone just sits. And for you, that will be the new normal. But if somebody else had that shoe, they'll be going crazy. I think we're living with that stone in the shoe, which is just, it's just, and that's just become the new norm, which is awfully tragic. But that's where we're at. And then from that point, you then go to and think, well, what can I do in that place? And you can either regress, accept it and do nothing, or accept it and try and say, okay, you know, we have dreams. Everyone has dreams what you want your life to be. No one, no one dreams this, but no one dreams lots of the tragic things that affect people in, in, in life. Um, and again, obligations to the living, to yourself, first and foremost. You're no good to anybody if you're not functioning yourself. Um, and to just make that journey, maybe it's little part of what I'm here tonight, just, mm-hmm. you know, if, if having awkward conversations is something that I want people to experience, mm-hmm. and being um, being agitated is not a bad thing, we can't mod- 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 call everyone and wrap them up in cotton wool, then having a life which is a bit upside down and saying that's okay and stop wishing it all to be rosy all the time is, I think, a more realistic... now. Somebody wanted to claim, some rabbi that came, that, you know, he's going to come back to us in a dream and tell us, mummy daddy, it's all okay. Mm-hmm. Um, that didn't happen. When I heard it, I just wanted to like get, just get out my house. Just rabbi, just wherever you are, just take a step and walk out. I think that's a dangerous thing. I think some of these spiritual teachings are particularly dangerous. Giving people hope for false hope. Um, that's not genuine or real. Could it happen? Yeah. My faith in God allows for those possibilities. But to live every day wondering why God hasn't sent my son back in a dream, I think is awful. Mm-hmm. Because then you somehow people, people, let people believe this stuff, and then they feel like spiritual failures. Somehow I'm greedy, but I'm not good enough. Like, and then that's another layer. Yeah, I like yeah. and I think it's really, really dangerous. Another thing we happen to spot, there's an amazing lady in America, Miriam Ribiat. Um, there's a group in America called... Day some something, or something. They, they learn in memory of people who can't facilitate it. But this woman has been through countless bereavement. She also lost a sibling who happened to be a twin with a girl. It's uncanny. There were some very uncanny parallels between her story, her parents, sister, Like she's lost, and she deals with grief and she's putting a book together. And we, she ended up sending us, I just found her on, on LinkedIn and we started speaking and then her father back in the I can't remember it was 80s or 90s, I think 80s, but I could be Wrong, wrong decade maybe, wrote his feelings. So sometimes reaching out to people who have been through this from the same cultural backgrounds mm-hmm. and just discussing things, I think, made that... Again, it, it validated the religious feelings, the, the frustration. It, I avoid asking. I can't speak for the whole of my family, but I avoid asking, why me? Because I don't think that's a question that has an answer, and it doesn't go anywhere. <clears throat> So my other Rosh Hashiva would, ask, would talk about the Holocaust and say, you can't ask, why did God do? There's lots of reasons I, I teach, taught Holocaust theology in the past, but I like his perspective. He said, don't ask why it's happened. But now that it's happened, what does God want from me? And so turning it from anger to something productive is the, the education that I got, and probably that's where religiously I got that inspiration.
0: Um, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in the things that you tell me that other people have said and um, one of the things that I was thinking about when I was preparing these, was these questions was um, what people have said to you, because um, I, I speak to, obviously I'm a psychologist in my profession, um, I, I speak to people who have gone through um, tragedy and bereavement, um, and some, t- some of the things that you've said, other people have said that it's really upsetting um, I've just written some examples. People say, um, you know, Hashem wanted them back. And they were too good for this world. They must have been very really special for Hashem to take them. They've done what they were, they've done. They've kid. They've done the work, what they're here on earth for. And, and they mean well, you know. People mean well, that, and maybe people here said these. You know, we all mean well. What, what? How do you feel about those comments? And what, what should people say? What can people say? What should people say? What should, say? What should they do?
1: So, one of my daughters, Tolly's twin sister, we sat next to each other in the shiver. And some kind person brought us a blanket which we just put over ourselves. And when people said stupid things, we both squeezed each other's hands to say, <laughs> we know it's stupid, just smile at them, and they'll be gone soon. Um, honestly, I don't mean... this. I think it does sound... Very righteous, but I don't want it to come out that way. When people say things that are inappropriate, I use that word rather than anything rude, I just look at them and think, "Thank God you don't know what you're talking about." <laughs> Honestly, it sounds—I literally say, like, "Baruch Hashem, you've never experienced, and I hope to God you never experience what this, the pain, the acuteness of this heartbreak, that you that you'll ever discover how ridiculous what you're saying is at this moment in time." Maybe for some people that works, yeah. and and that's that's the that's the real difficulty here. Mm-hmm. That for some people that will do it for them. Um, you know, I've listened to. I watch a lot of Israeli news. So, you know, speaking on Friday morning, last Friday on one of the Israeli channels was Miriam Peretz, who's you know, the most amazing woman. You know, she lost two children in various wars, and she's this tower of strength of. You know, she's she stood for president of Israel, so she's. know, able to overcome her her challenges and put herself in in that role. And I find her completely inspiring. Again, as a role model for just getting on with things. I prefer not to speak for God. Our our texts describe what God does, but I've got no idea. Um, Yes, we were told, because he passed away before the age of 20, at over bar mitzvah, that if he had done anything wrong in those couple of years, whatever, he suffered, cleansed, so he's gone... He's completely, his soul, is, his most radiant soul, and is totally perfect. And I guess a part of me, that's lovely. So, like, okay, I was picked to have a champion soul, but then immediately, well, why me? Um, and how does that help me now when I'm grieving and missing my sidekick? Um... But again, I don't ask why. So like, what, what can I do about it? Like, by, I, by, not, by not asking the question that I don't ask, it, deals, it takes away a lot of that. I think be strong is another one. Oh, be strong. Like if I was, I'm stronger than Popeye at this rate. you, know, you know, <laughs> don't know, it dates me as a child. <laughs> but you know.
0: Eat spinach. Something, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, what should I, people
1: say then? I don't, re- the, I don't really know. I think it's such a difficult people crossed the road or avoided looking at us not because they weren't there and i think we've come to learn that about certain people who we felt were unjustly absent from our lives i mean COVID gave people some excuse because it happened to coincide with, yeah. but not really not certain people and i think recently we've spoken my wife and i and just made peace with that. Their, their absence was not a lack of caring or a lack of sympathy it was we actually don't know we don't have almost as if they're they, they, they were, a they were mute and they don't have the language to, to say what, what and they don't know what to say and really there is nothing to say a, a good friend of ours turned up Friday after Friday with treats for Shabbos dips for salad pomelos random things that, you know like pimentos, just putting it out there, um, and I cut them up. So I got all the hard work, and I get to enjoy it. The like a grapefruit on my It's like the thickest, thickest peel. Yeah, grapefruit, orange. It, 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 it was just, it was just the the unrequested, just the the, sponta- the spontaneity of just turning up, and we didn't need it. We you no, know, we shopped, we cooked, we never sort of got hold so sharp of shoppers. Yeah, that. it was just something little, and it wasn't. It wasn't the cost of the gift, it was just that the gesture. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was just sweet. And it was nice. And it became, maybe after a few weeks, like a little bit awkward, but then it sort of just became part of how we were going to cope with the week, looking forward to the visit. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was those that felt capable. And not to judge, I think it's, mm-hmm. maybe it goes back, I my brain's sort of creating a theme out of this. Because we don't, have conversations that are difficult because we don't want to feel upset. We don't want to show our emotions on the outside. It's all sort of very hidden. And we apologise in our culture for everything. Sorry, I'm crying. But why should you be sorry you're crying? Mm-hmm. Some things are just going to trigger that wave of emotions. But actually, it's beautiful. Okay. You no, know, if you can cry over somebody's name out like before in question two, it's because the love is so deep. And it's just overwhelming. And the personality is so... It's a yearning that just transcends our vocabulary. We, humanity hasn't developed a, a lexicon of words that, that captures the depth of you. Of, of and so, actually, the tears make me proud that there was someone there worthy of being cried over. In my, in my other job, with Holy Law, I've stood there at funerals, and Croft is... A particularly complicated place to be that's where he's buried. But I've conducted services in agecroft a bunch of times. Since. Since. And there was one time that I came home and I had to go to bed. Not because because there was a person passed away. And literally the family just spoke drivel about Grandpa. And spoke about how he used to take the remote control and Cousin Jimmy you've got his anger and Cousin Becky you've got his... I'm like... This man lived to his mid-80s and they, they stood there in front of his coffin and there was nothing about the person's life that they could speak about that was meaningful. And I, I, was, I came home I was like, oh, it was awful. It really upset me that, they, that this person had lived all these years and there was nothing there. And I think when, when, if you are so moved over the death of someone, it's because there was something very special there. That, that's gone. And you're, you're, you're mourning that as well, the, the uniqueness of that life that you would imagine could have achieved so much more. So I think people don't know how to speak. Sometimes they say it wrong. If they're going to say it wrong, you've got two options. You either be angry at them and fall out with everybody and just be bitter. There's no, what does that help? That doesn't help you. Being bitter just makes things worse. Or you can just say that, thank God they have no idea what they're talking about. And give them a bracha that you should never know what, it's, know, what, what this is like. And realise that they're trying. And the people who cross the road, again, you could either be bitter or believe that they just, they feel inept. They don't know what to say. And maybe deep down they're just crying with you. Or that maybe that they're also broken. And they just, it's so painful for them to talk to you that they can't do it. And we do believe you know, that Hashem, whatever this means, I can't say, it's just me, but Hashem gives you what you can cope with. So let's, say, let, let's, let's go with that for a moment. So we'll go with that, that, head, that headspace. Hashem gives you what you can cope with. So the other person is grieving, but they weren't given that challenge. They're just grieving by association, mm-hmm. so they really can't cope with it. So how do we expect them to be able to deal with that in the way that I'm dealing with it? So maybe they need more help till they can till they can cope, and so. Now, those that are through it got the strength, the help from Hashem to to get through it, to get up. I mean, I, waking up each morning during Shiva to have to go downstairs to welcome people for chakras in my own. Ha- it was it was like like Groundhog Day, but in a really bad place. And it was just, it was, just, it was that those experiences were hell. But we got up. There wasn't at the end. So something must be going on in a in a spiritual sense, that you, that you don't know it at the time, but you're given something that enables you to, to function. And that could be that it was upbringing. It could be... And I do look back, I think, maybe some of those experiences in my formative years, that I needed to be strong, that I needed to, to, to dig into myself, to cope with a situation, created in, the, in that, that moment, a stronger personality that didn't know existed, I didn't know existed, that no one could know that it exists. Mm-hmm. And maybe all of us sort of have that capacity, but I pray that no one ever has to be the strongest person.
0: Mm-hmm. Amen. When you, um, talk, when you talk about functioning and being strong and afterwards, how did you go back to school? I and mean, you, you're in a job where you're surrounded by, <laughs> by 14 15 year old kids. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That, that's one of God's sense of humor moments. Yeah. I always put it that way. That's <laughs> me being polite to God. Um, yes, it would have been easier to go back to a desk job. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we finished Shiva, and then we waited at home for the, for the first month. We didn't really do too much. All of us were just at home. And then I said, I said to everyone, January, we're all going back to our, to our, to our normal lives. No, it's enough. We can either be hermits forever. I mean, even before that, back in shul, um, at the time I didn't really appreciate it, but Rabbi Chazan, bless him, pushed me to continue my job as the chazan in shul. <coughs> now, Benching Rosh Chodesh has the word chayim quite a lot in that. And there was I, less than two and a half weeks of my son, doubling about having a month full of life, a life, a life, a life. Now, I do a little trick, which, whatever it is in psychology, the way it gets overwhelming I either take a nail and just sort of push it down onto my thumb. Then the brain goes, ow, and it sort of knocks it off the thoughts. Um, And I think I probably did the whole prayer doing that. But I got through that. I mean, he wanted me to go back to, to, to begin the process of healing. And the only way I was going to do that process of healing was by getting back into the rhythm of life. And I pushed myself and he encouraged it to do that. Then I remember during that first month, I also give out certificates or treats when it's a kid's <coughs> birthday. And there was a kid there. What? should:. short. i Celebrate all the, the youngest kids, their birthdays from like zero to 12 year olds. Mm-hmm. And there was a kid with the name Naftali. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's people, in, there's a family in short, and older men, older gentlemen, whose father has exactly the same Hebrew name as my son. So, like, when they get called up for Levi, and I hear the words Naftali May," it's like, it, you know, every time they get called up, it's like, oh, it, it. but, you know, that's that unpleasant balance. And I know from them, they, they made a comment at the beginning, I don't know if they still remember the comment, but they felt uneasy by their fathers. It's like, they didn't like their own name now, because it was, in the early months, it was, it was complicated. Um, but we got on with things. And then I said, right, I'm going back to school, there's no point in December, I wasn't going to sit in a class in silence watching kids do winter exams. There was no an value. And I went in one time before just to get back into the building. I sat in the car park, flood, just flooded tears. Um I'm like, okay, let's do this. Wipe the tears away, got out of the car. And the colleagues are, are very precious. We've got some amazing colleagues at school. Um, I had to fight off the Desire to hug me from some of the female colleagues. <laughs> 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 and string, arm stroke. a quite kind of arm yeah, yeah. Um, um, but, uh,
0: but That's interesting though because they're, they're trying to. Like, they haven't got the words. No. So which we want to give those. Strokes. Yeah, the nurturing. Yeah, no, it, yeah. it was beautiful. Yeah. No, it was it was it was just. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yes, correct. Um, and I knew that was going back to it to in terms of the colleagues and the staff in the school. A lot of support, a lot of love, and. My role, one of the characters that I play in school is giving that to them. Over the years, I've been in school, Um, you know, when we've had students pass away in school, one from transplant, whatever, over the years, somehow it fell on my shoulders to go up and hold the school on my shoulders, with no training, by the way, just (laughs) given that job. Um, And it sort of came back, the love that I showed, it was, I felt very, very nurtured but there were days when some of those less than lovely teenagers, I looked at them thinking, like, what's the point of your life, you know? Yes, there were some moments where I got very angry internally and thought, you're so disgusting, you're so rude, you've got no dignity to others, you're just rude to your friends and rude to the adults in the room. And, and just like, and my son was just an ordinary kid and look what he achieved. And, that wasn't very That was in the early days. It, those thoughts, again, are not very helpful. It might be natural, in, you know, expression of emotions, but definitely not helpful thoughts. And they were, it was difficult. But again, this sense of, as the Torah commands us, choose life, that I believe echoes through the books of the Torah. You know, There's that passage right at the beginning of Shemot, where the midwives don't, don't kill the babies the Pharaoh wants to kill them but it says they, they cause the children to live and it's that, that sense that the Torah is called the Torah of life and I thought well yeah I don't have my son but let me try and give over and in my talks in school for sure I, I'm channeling some of that energy you
0: do a um, lot, of, lot of these podcasts yes and
1: the messages that I give over the sense of reaching out to each other and being yeah. there and being sensitive to the needs of others all the sort of the the life that he had, um, the hidden life that we didn't know about him, and then the character that emerged in those months in the hospital, I, sort of, I speak about that, and I don't always speak about it frontally and include his name in the conversation, but I think I'm channeling that type of personality. It was such a beautiful personality. Again, that sense that the hospital grieved over him. And the cards we received from some other, I'm just thinking now, the cards we got from, from the other nurses on the ward who couldn't come to our house. I mean, they saw death on that ward. That was a, you know, a the cat oncology ward, a rheumatology. And they, they saw horrible things. And to try and encourage others to be a bit more, a bit more like he was. So it's a mission, it's a mission. It's not, it's not always easy. And I think it's even harder today COVID has definitely Mm. impacted our teenagers in ways that will emerge more and more as the data gets, as people do research and the data comes out. Some of them are really struggling with personal skills, with resilience, like a lot of these things. We had this pandemic in school with weather is boiling hot outside or the sun's shining, it's not cold. The kids are wearing puffer coats, which is basically an adult version of a comfort blanket. Mm. Because they put all their duvets all day at home. And they've all become ADHD hyperactive fidgeters. Like It's not normal. They've all, they've all created needs that didn't exist. So they've got issues. I mean, these are going to be adults that are going to go into the workplace needing to doodle every hour of the day. It's, it's not. And so there's a lot to do. We've got to save... And they've got to save humanity from where we're at at the moment with our teenagers and bring them out and give them the confidence and say, it's okay to be fragile. It's okay to reach out. You know, look after each other. You're not... You're not less of a guy if you're sensitive to other people. You're not less of a person for noticing people's pain in the playground and saying, "Can I help you?" So, I'm trying to channel that. But there are like there are days, when, yeah, like he did. Um, but there are days time. when it's uh, just
0: keeping it on time.
1: Days when it's very difficult and very complicated.
0: Just, I'm um, oh, sorry. Just keeping on time, making sure that I've got so many things I want to ask you. Just on the subject of, of the teenagers in the school, the work you do in the school and the mental health that you're talking about. We see obviously at JAM and through my private practice, young people with the sorts of mental health problems that you're talking about, um, more after Covid. And unfortunately some people, some young people do want to take their own lives, some of them attempt to take their lives, some of them self-harm. Um, and it's interesting actually how you talk about the thumbtack thing. Mm. Um, which is, some people, I'm not saying it's self-harm, it's a good alternative Mm. to self-harm, but people do that as a a distraction or as a way to have a pain they can focus on rather than the pain in the head. Uh, But I just wonder how you you get your head round this idea that there are some people the same age as Naftali who want to take their lives and he wanted to live, you know, how do you reconcile yourself to that?
1: with love towards those people. I don't think anyone can, you know, if someone's in, in pain, and they want to escape, <clears throat> to leave where they're at, you know, not everyone has a dynamic in their lives that they feel they can talk to anybody, it's just, it makes sense. It makes sense on a human level. If you're talking about a religious level, you no, know, the concept is, is a no, it doesn't start for me because on Jewish spiritual teachings, the you know, body and soul separate. The neshama is fully aware of what's going on and is stuck. It doesn't go anywhere. It continues to. It doesn't know it's dead. It doesn't know where it's going, and it's it's awful for them. them yes, that's, that's in the Jewish mystical teachings. It's it's not a simple thing at all. Someone leaves, passes away at the right time. The soul's <coughs> got a journey. They take their life it's, it's from, from the spiritual teachings. It's very complicated. Um, but on a human level, if you put that to one side and sort of don't look through that, that prism, I can understand. You know, life is very painful and very bleak for many people. I think the education system does not help. I think school is an awful place for lots of people. That just, it, it pushes them down. I don't know what the correct... I don't think it, I don't think it is a correct structure for a school for example schools that stream the viability the weakest members define themselves as being doomed to failure and that they just label themselves and then they don't try so it's self-fulfilling prophecy the brighter kids could have the other that other experience they're so pressured and then the failure of the fear of failure there's so many students answer a question with the words i'm probably wrong but now that's a genius genius response to a question it means they're always going to be right if they give the wrong answer, I told you I was going to be wrong. Yeah. They completely shield themselves from ever being wrong. And if they were right, well, no one's going to remember that I was probably wrong because they're going to be praised for what they've just said. So they protect themselves. So There's a total fear on both sides of the spectrum. The middle one's just sort of muddle through and they can go in either direction. There's a tremendous amount of pressure for young people today. You know, when I used to walk home and walk past a non-Jewish school, that would us in Hendon, coming home from Hasmoneer. So what do you have when I, when I went to school and... Uh, uh, late eighties and early nineties had twenty p or twenty five p in your pocket. That you bought the Mars bar from the kids in the playground that were selling. Okay, now you've got hundreds of pounds worth of gadgets on you. There's a responsibility there that weighs on their shoulders. There's so much more in life that that, that challenges young people. That you know we we brought our children up a certain way. Our, our own background gave us certain perspectives, my wife and I, and maybe we could do whatever job we did with our children. Um, and that gave Naftali his ability to, to, to respond in that way. Other people, you know, it's the afternoon, I think maybe I'm, I do the mental health things because I'm sensitive to their pain and aware of it. And I've seen it, I've seen, there you were know, one of the water was on, there were teenagers there that you just think, they're so desperate to live because their lives have been put on pause through sickness. And they would give anything just to be normal. And they just need... They, they, no one needs judging, and no one needs to be questioned in that way. If someone's in that place, and rather than asking, how can you contemplate that, it's like, what can we do to stop you feeling that, to me, is the only question. And you know, And if, God forbid, it goes in that awful place, then again, no judgment, no questioning, most natural in the world, what could I have done? Parents, families, but sometimes there is nothing to do. Sometimes that's, that's part of this, the, the tragedy of existence. It, just, it was, just, it's just, yeah. But it hurts. It hurts to think that anyone could be in, in that place. Maybe the people that Naftali helped, if not for him, could have been in that place. So mm. get that sense of pride, but just being aware of how precious life is and to speak about the gift of life and if that doesn't resonate with someone and they don't look happy with hearing about the gift of life then you've got to pounce on that and say well, what is it about life thats not that doesn't fill you with some optimism or some sense of being greater than wherever you are at the moment and then flood their lives with help and support as much as, as possible knowing that it's not always possible tragically yeah I
0: just going to be on a slightly different uh, topic now. Mm-hmm. The, yeah, so a lot of people that I work with... Pause, one second. Go on, ask your question, fine. Yeah. fine.
1: Right. Yeah. Um,
0: so, I, obviously I work with people with mental health problems all the time, and a, a lot of people, especially when they've got problems, or they're miserable, they're, they're, they're depressed, or whatever, low mood, it's a very common theme is that people feel they don't have the right oh. to be unhappy and they feel guilty, and I, I'm sorry for taking your time, I'm sorry for bothering you, and I'm sure there are people with worse tragedies and worse people, and I've even had the occasional client who might have even mentioned your situation, and said, well, compared to what Rabbi written I've got no right to feel like this, but they do. I just wonder, you know, what's your take on that? How, how do you, can, can you still sympathise with people who have, you know, their, their worries seem so, irrelevant or, or, or small compared to what you've been through, or their problems?
1: Okay, so that, let's confess openly in this public forum to a misdemeanor. I was conducting a funeral in Ashcroft, and it was irritating me that the mourners were losing perspective. So whilst they were filling in the plot, I just popped over to where my son was buried, and stood there for a few minutes. And when I came back, they were much better behaved. I think someone must have told them to get a grip (laughs) There's a 90-year-old versus a 15-year-old. Now, that's not entirely cheeky of me, because there is a story in the Talmud where one of the rabbis, you know, 2,000 years ago, it was quite common, lost 10 children and took the bone of something, whatever, of his final son to comfort others to say, you know, everyone can, I'm here to look after you. Again, no one can judge. No one can judge the impact of a loss or of a a moment of grief or of a perceived failure and the impact it has on anybody. I've gone to shiver houses and I've, I've been empathetic and sympathetic and I generally felt sad for the family that that's lost a relative, it doesn't matter the age, it's still an emptiness in their life. And what I know is that the emptiness will be easier to cope with over time, but right now they're feeling that's that, that feeling of being bereft and being, having that gap in the heart. And that's where I take myself. I, no, I'm, there. If, if I'm If I'm doing a job that's there for other people, then it's not about me or weighing up my loss against their loss. It's, it's individual. I think still as a society we do get embarrassed by our perceived lack of being strong men and women. And I don't know how that's going to change, because you don't want everyone going on to the thing and blabbering away the whole time to like, you've kind of have a society of everyone just
0: all the time pouring out their hearts,
1: because resilience demands that you've got to know the, the, the right limits of showing emotion and being able to, to function. And if all we're doing is all the time expressing ourselves, and that's probably not so healthy either. So, whatever anyone's going through, they need someone to support. If, if my, pre- I, I, would, I would hate to imagine that my presence would make some of, uh, supporting them at a funeral or an unveiling, whatever it might be, would be perceived by the family as actually adding to their grief because they now feel awkward expressing themselves. <laughs> but thank God, as far as I'm aware, I've done quite a few in, in, since November 19. Um, there was a stage where I couldn't say the brochure anymore going to the cemetery, I'd, I'd been there like, crazy amount for various things people whatever people are going through they need support and if I can support them and I'm available then I'm there to support them and to help them understand what they're going through is their moment and they have every single right and people should realise that you know it's, not, it's again it's okay it really is okay to feel weak to need help but we do I, maybe I wouldn't be saying this if what we went through hadn't been so of such magnitude. Mm-hmm. And I can feel confident in saying it because it's one of those experiences that nobody wants to go through in life. Like, really no one. Like, you could justify losing your job, or oh, I'll find something else, or I'll do and that's okay, but there's no, there's no replacement in this one. It's, it's a finality. And you know, just now for our daughter's wedding, which was just over there,
0: so it's nice, <laughs> to, nice to be back,
1: just over before, a few weeks ago. You know, my wife and I promised her, I promised ourselves this was her wedding, and this wasn't about who isn't there. It's about what's happening with our oldest child and the gorgeous guy that she that she married. And I'm proud of the way we did that. It it was absolutely draining afterwards. I mean, two weeks afterwards, we were still completely shattered. Not not was late nights, so that's irrelevant, but just the emotional toll of having to to push the natural feelings of grief and wanting to talk, wanting to say. We didn't know, and, I'm, and she felt it, and people came away, and those that came from London, said that was a really happy wedding. That there was the potential for it not to have been a happy wedding. And so we promised ourselves to, you know, it's, it's got to know when to focus on the grief, know when to be happy, and that it's okay to take a night off. You know, we're, not, we're not worse parents for not, think, for not making it at the focus of the wedding, and we're better for it. And that juggling act is what we've started to to make part of our life. You no, know, only only God, and I mean this like with deep humility to the One Above, could have brought together this concoction of having the Sefer Torah ceremony in memory of our son, which was booked a few months before my daughter started shidduchim. So that was so. Shabbos was the offering of in Golders green. We drove back after Shabbat. Sunday was the Sefer Torah. The end of the week was Pesach. And then there was the wedding. Now, no normal person, and I really mean that, no normal person, mm-hmm. would put together emotions that take you in such drastically different directions, all in the space of a few weeks. I mean, I I can drive an almost sane person insane, just by itself, and let alone all the other things we put on either side of it. But that juggling is also okay. Like, it's okay, I think, to do that. And not, you know, when, when you're feeling low, to feel low. And when you're feeling happy, to be happy. And that's not a contradiction and to live in that in that balance is fine, I think. I had a teacher once that, you know, that there's amazing verses in Kohelet, Ecclesiastes chapter three. There's a time for this and a time for that. This concept, you know, don't worry, be happy. He said, no, we're not human beings, because that that sort of suggests a static mode of existence. You have to be happy, we're human becomings, And I love that concept, because you have to then become whatever feeling or whatever mode is appropriate in the situation. I think if we moved away from the sense of being as a static mode of how we have to live our lives and how we have to perceive ourselves and how we want other people to perceive us, oh, that's always the intellectual one, that's the happy one, that's the thespian one, that's the sport, and move away from that, that, that one dimension sense of identity, and say, actually, this is a human being, and at times they will be this, becoming, and at times they'll become happier, at times they'll become the dancer, and at times they'll become the person sitting on a own chair. That's okay. So I think we need a more complicated, a more nuanced sense of self and identity, and to redefine identity for the masses. So, and, we, and to have a hybrid, you know, we have my son-in-law. Oh, son-in-law, such a cute way of speaking. <laughs> he's, got, he's got a new car. And he told me it's one of these, you know they existed. It's a hybrid between automatic and manual. I have no idea why you do want to bother with the clutch if you can does it by itself, but anyway. But maybe that's what we need. We need to have a hybrid sense of identity for all of us. Think about the things that make up our lives and say, I'm going to become whoever I want to, and this is who I am. I'm this conglomerate of aspects rather than just having to be the one. And then, that will be okay. Then we'll all be fine. Because we'll just become different parts. I like that.
0: Did, did you find it hard to accept the, the the being happy you know afterwards is it was it something you know, a lot of people feel guilty to, to be happy and you talk about that a lot happiness yeah.
1: no but it's one of those cliche things that I'm trying to avoid tonight but that cliched of the person who passed away wouldn't want you to mourn forever which is a true thing no no if he knew that he was gonna be he didn't know I mean well there was a lot of a lot of pain and said some things so and maybe he had some sense that he was but we didn't know, when, when he went down to intensive care because he had breathing difficulties, which was eerily similar to what then became COVID a few months later. Um, but we, we then were told that it would be advisable to put him into an induced coma. We didn't know that that would be there. that that would then never wait, never come come round from that. Um, but I don't reckon, I know, we, we if, if he would have said to him, he would never have said to him, he would be standard. So, Again, I think it's about honouring his life. Honouring him is being happy. Honouring him and e- projecting his energy and his essence, which in some, some strange way keeps us keeps us connected to him. I think it's about continuing and rebuilding, and then that sense of obligation to our other children. They can't, otherwise we're just creating a family of victims. And, and one thing, they are victims. My youngest child, When my daughter moved to Golders Green, almost went through a bereavement again because no, he shared a room with Naftali. and then one thing we did straight after Shiva, I couldn't really go into the bedroom, but took a very very deep breath and we just dismantled the bunk bed and just got rid of it like that visual without him. We needed just to redefine that space urgently. Then we got we got painter. We just did something to change the look of that that space, but he no he with his brother, then brother was gone. Then now his sisters moved to gold to screen. That could define the other children just as victims of, you know, of a bereavement, and then happy things to move away. But they were, I mean, we want them to, to to seize life, to to build, to have their own families, to to, to to grow up and be happy because we owe it to them, and they, you know, and who knows what they will do for society or humanity? So, you know, on the broader sense, and I think. The most remarkable, and I mean this with all love for all my children, but I think his twin sister, who, who has gone through something that even I can't understand, the twin thing. I used to, I used to watch them on Shabbos walking in from shore together, um, and there's disapproving stares from certain members of the further to the right community, who thought, oh, boy and girl talking in the street, because they, 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 they didn't know they were siblings, and they were so close, they would nudge each other, and they were literally, like, they had this, uh, twins. I, I, I can't explain it. There was a love there that transcended everything. It was an anecdote, I can't remember which way around my wife would tell me I've got it, it's probably the, the wrong way around. But when they were in kindergarten, in Jewish day, were like three, four years old, one of them had, the teacher had used, A glove or a scarf for some winter display, and one of them went and said, "That's my brother. That's my sister," and took it back. Like they they had this bond that just went beyond logic or went beyond everything. The fact that she is so driven and such a remarkable young young woman, and is channeling her grief and her energy, her emptiness, that is more profound than us as parents. And I can't, I can't, you know. We look and we see when she's in pain, but she's seizing every opportunity to, to, to be the best in her education. To please God, go off to Semen and learn pharmacy and be the best in that realm. And you know, the, the, the inspiration that she got from seeing how the clinicians and the pharmacists in the hospital tried to get him a medication that was unlicensed on a trial thing on a, on a compassionate grounds. From Switzerland and every, all the discussions and the ethics and the me- uh, that she wants to use her her pain to do good. That's insp- That's you know, that's incredible. And I believe some of that is her, and some of that is the way my wife and I have conducted ourselves since. And that sense of choose life, let's keep going. And so people shouldn't feel guilty. People should just if you they know, should feel loved, reach out. We can talk about. We can share. I, think I even, I'm completely mad. I was sent to a shiver house straight after I finished using shiver. I can't remember. It must have been for Tolly. So yeah, someone, someone had a shiver house and I had to go from shore. Which my does that, but I guess my shiver's got plans, and I just went as if it was the most. But again, I'm gutted. I think my parents taught me this. You no, know, look out for people you can help, and just go and do it. I'd, you know, people talk about free will and determinism. I don't think I've chosen this. I think it's a, something that I've was shown as a child, and it's just it's natural. It's just the way that I was up. I can't take credit for what I was taught. It just is.
0: Well, some things you have chosen, for example, joining Jam. Um, why did you get involved in Jam? You're a trustee at Jam. You've chosen to do this this evening. You know, you have chosen those things. Why Why have you decided to do that?
1: I've been teaching for 20 years and I'm so tired. But
0: <laughs>
1: anyone got a better job offer? <laughs> we'll talk. I've got till 31st of May. Um, I think I think there'll be
0: people very upset if you leave.
1: <laughs> there are they teenagers are a fascinating species subset of the human race in and of themselves. Somewhere between child and a human. There's just this <laughs> Thing called teenage and the truth is that some people are fantastic educators but lousy human beings and understand that they're, they're good at teaching information and getting a grade out of a person but they're not good at the human touch and I see it I see I see struggle and see pain kids choose to talk to me and Baruch Hashem, my colleagues as well, you know, they, they, they talk to us as the rabbis in the school. And recently we've got uh, a few non-Jewish kids in our school, Christians, like probably not, not like people who are halakhically questionable, but Christian kids in the school because we've got spaces and the, the local authority mm. gave these kids. And these Christian girls are talking to me as well. Like they're, they're coming up to the rabbis to share their problems. You can't ignore that. You can't ignore the struggles and difficulties and the faces. And there's, I have a sense sometimes in in a school, it's all about looking at a behaviour and judging it to either be good or bad without the holistic sense of why is someone doing that? What makes them act in that way? And it's that question that intrigues me and animates me and I hopefully bring it into sort of look at a child differently. And also, the adult, the adult world through my short job and being there and listening to people, and the adult world sharing challenges and asking for advice and guidance. If, if me being part of this makes it accessible for another human being, whether it's because I've got the title rabbi or they feel safe because they know me from school, then that's a good thing. If it can open up a, a conversation with somebody and they will God forbid, hurt themselves or, or, or suffer in, in silence and then just pass on that grief to the next generation. And we, we speak about children of Holocaust survivors and some of the struggles they might have because of the unspoken pain and suffering that, that the generation before had. If people who are suffering today don't get their help and then, then they somehow get through and fake it and, and, and have relationships, but then that comes out either in marriage and the breakdown of a family or the next their children, if I can make it reasonable, acceptable, good, whatever, you know, different, then probably then it's another way of helping, It's another way of saying, come on, it's okay, it's kosher. It's kosher to, to need help, it's kosher to want to ask for help, you're not alone, you know. If, with, with the Rabbi brain on, you not know, it's not good to be alone was the first negative in the Torah. Yeah, that, that's the very first thing God said as a negative in the whole, the whole story. So, yeah, it's not good to be alone. And You know, hey, you're not alone. If you want to speak to someone, that's okay.
0: Well, we're very grateful for your involvement here, an absolute asset to Jan. Thank you. Um, but we are coming to the end. Um, I just want to leave with, with a final question, really, which is Naftali's legacy. What, what, what do you want Naftali's le- legacy to be? What is it?
1: I think his unassuming love. People like, you know, people like to, I'm part of the same era. You know, social media prompts us today to, to share everything. I have a gorgeous sixth form, form class in the morning. And the boys do their thing and the girls t- take selfies and look at themselves in the mirror and then they have to post their, their early morning selfie. And I heard of a new one this week, kind of the, 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 the platform's cool, where they take pictures and share like, a moments of the day with other people. So we're all living in this crazy world where you've got to tell everybody everything you're doing and get everyone to like it. Otherwise, you're not. You're somehow deficient and not, not, a, not a successful human being. I don't everyone likes what you've posted. Well, there he was, in his own quiet way, literally saving people's lives, helping, being there, being the glue that holds people together with love, and without bragging, and with just this unassuming, pure nature. I think I would like to try and channel that. So just to, you know, if there's a need to be public like tonight, if it can help somebody then to go ahead and do that. But in the rest of the life, just to be there quietly, to guide people and support people, and to, to look out for people to put people in the centre of everything that's being done, to bring, to bring out the best in others. And whilst, whilst you're doing that, you ultimately succeed in bringing out the best, the best in yourself.
0: It's a lovely way to end the session. So I'd really like to thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, I think you've given us a lot of food for thought, a lot of inspiration really, um, you know, I, I've been challenged and it's made me think a lot, I'm sure everybody is the same. Um, just a reminder, if, if anybody is struggling with their mental health, or whether relative tonight or not, or you know people who are, please get in touch with Jam.